This is the BizWest Podcast, a rundown of the news and trends driving business in Northern Colorado and the Boulder Valley. I'm Dan Micah. The BizWest Podcast is brought to you by Charter Technology, offering dependable, custom-tailored IT services for an array of businesses in Northern Colorado. In today's world, you can't afford to lose a day or even hours waiting for your IT company to call you back or get to your ticket. That's where we come in. Visit chartertech.com. This week, we bring you a few selected conversations from Confluence, our annual symposium on how water impacts northern Colorado's present and future. First off, we have Chuck Rhodes, a research biogeochemist at the USDA Forest Service, on how Colorado's record-setting fire season this year could change how local watersheds could behave for years to come. Here's Chuck. And one of the things I'd sort of like to talk about in in my talk is sort of thinking a little bit longer term. And one of the things to kind of, you know, Jen talked about some of the fire cycles. It's important to remember that a lot of these forests that are burning now, many of them are 100 years old and, and quite a few of them are much, much older than that. Some of the fires that are burning in these high elevation forests, there haven't been fires in these areas for several hundred years. So three to 500 year old trees are burning and it's a, it's a, a situation that is in, incredibly unique. If you look at the map in the, in that, I'm, that I'm showing, you can see recent fires in this sort of Northern Colorado, North Park, Front Range area, whatever you want to call it. And you can really see that these areas are kind of closing together. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the reasons why, but many of those big fires are very recent. That's We, we keep breaking records on new wildfire sizes. So things are, things are changing and they have long-term consequences. I'm going to talk about that a little bit today. Jared is going to talk about about sort of the implications for water utilities and and the the downstream water quality. And Jen pointed that out. You know, two thirds of the water that comes that that is used by Western cities and Western um, communities comes from headwater forests. So their connection is very very important. Um, other things that are also important to keep in mind are the are the connections with the the aquatic ecosystems and how well um, those are behaving and what the implications of wildfires might be when you have a large amount of nutrients and a large amount of light that comes in and you have disturbances. What does that mean for those ecosystems? Jen pointed out some of the values of those for recreation, for fishing, and so on. They're also kind of important, and Stephanie alluded to this. You get erosion coming off the erosion and the nutrients that are coming off of these forested areas that's also the productivity of those forests so there's a there's a piece to that where you have nutrients that are being lost or carbon that's being lost from these systems and going downstream and that leaves forests with fewer nutrients they may be less productive and so it's an important kind of benchmark for the restoration or the recovery of those systems when you when you stephanie talked uh, about some of the changes that happen when you when you remove vegetation and and if you sort of go back to the 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 pre-fire image that she was sort of alluding to our water supply and our nutrient use and and so on are, are fairly well balanced so our undisturbed watersheds don't export a lot of nutrients you don't see much sediment coming out of them um, there's a good sort of control between the uptake of nutrients for example and the supply but when you 
when you sort of take the top off of that, you remove the trees or you remove the vegetation, you can see the kind of change in infiltration and erosion that, that Stephanie showed. What she doesn't show and you can't see is the lack of nutrient uptake. Those plants are no longer taking, taking up nutrients. They're no longer able to kind of hold those on the site. And that translates into nitrogen and phosphorus moving into streams where it, it may influence things like eutrophication and you, you've probably heard of algal blooms and those are concerns both for aquatic health but also for for water treatment. You can imagine in the photo on the right what a pre-fire forest is. All of those trees are sucking up nutrients and maintaining sediment and, and nutrients in a site as opposed to the picture below which is what happened after a fire. One of the, mo the take-homes I'd like to leave you with today is is a all fires are not the same message. And it's important to think about this because we're seeing a lot of fires moving through a lot of, we're just seeing these blobs on maps. We don't know what those really look like. And it takes a while to go out and actually assess the, 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 the responses from a water quality perspective. Um, and it varies logically you know some fires you can see in the in the photo some fires will burn an entire tributary and that that area will respond very very dramatically because there's been a, a huge loss of vegetation and a huge loss of of the organic layer protecting the soil surface other ones not so much and it scales with the size of watersheds and you can see from that photo that's the Heyman fire there's a, a large variety of, of of options and that's the same and at this point the U.S. Forest Service is 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 out running around mapping how burn severity lays down on the landscape and and trying to determine what that means for water utilities for downstream water quality and a lot of other things the recover of those areas so fire severity is is how people talk about that and it's basically the the amount of vegetation and organic layers that are that are taken off of the soil and and that is a direct um whoops that that influences the the water quality so for example in this graph i'm showing various water quality constituents following the Heyman fire and the the red bars on the right are where you've had an ex extensive amounts of severe wildfire within a catchment yellow is moderate and the green is unburned so the extensive might mean that those areas in this case 50 to 60 percent of an of a catchment was burned so a fairly extensive amount of burning. The important thing to see, those different panels show different times of the year. Those are fairly consistent in terms of that pattern. But the but one of the important things is this data was for 14 years after the fire. And, and that's another one of the take-home points I'd like to stress is that some of these effects can last for quite a long time. Stephanie was talking about recovery of vegetation, and that helps to slow down the sediment. So the bottom line of that is, set, is sediment leaving the, the forest and 15 years after the fire, 14, 15 years after the fire, that sediment signal is starting to, to fall off. It's not such a big deal. We can still see that in some areas and after certain rainstorms, but the nitrogen and the carbon that are coming off of these catchments are still elevated. And that indicates that there's actually been a change in the way those watersheds are processing nutrients. As I said before, 
prior to the fire, very little nutrients are making it out of this out of the watershed. 90% or more are being held by the vegetation in a watershed. In this case, more than 50% of the nutrients that are coming in are now making it down into the aquatic ecosystems or making it down to treatment plants. Carbon is making it into treatment plants where they can have effects on, on water quality and water treatment. So long-term effects are, are relevant. And, and, and this is sort of a, a scaling up story for a, a study that was done in 159 different watersheds around the Western US. A very similar response was shown to what we saw at Hayman. So 10 years and the far on, on the, the, the figures on the right show 10 years after a fire for a number of these fairly large watersheds that burn showing that areas that have more of the area burned so in this case 20 to 25 to 50 percent of the watershed those ones have a a a multiple fold increase in nitrogen and phosphorus compared to ones that were burned at lower severity so these effects are both long lasting and widespread I mentioned sort of the, the bigger picture, and, and this is kind of the important part. Jen said, you know, fires are native. They're, it's a part of our ecosystem. They've evolved with them and so on. But, and, and, and we often learn in our sort of undergraduate ecology text that fire regenerates forests. So the, the cycle on the, on the left-hand side shows a forest being burned and then recovering back to a forest again. And everything is sort of predictable and, and what, we, what we like to think about. But in recent years, people have been starting to report on fires that have kind of deviated. They're no longer behaving the way they were supposed to behave. And so the regeneration link is not working as planned. So even places where the, the, the pattern is fairly well understood, like at Yellowstone National Park, the fire frequency is either higher or the severity is higher and the regeneration is not coming back. And so there's some concern that these fires may be having longer term and sort of unintended consequences that that we don't understand and that we may not like. And in Colorado, we have one of these that's going on right now. And I wanted to show this figure again. The map shows the, the this year's fires, the the, the non um, Great, the non-grayed out or the non-hatched um, ones, and the, the the picture on the upper left-hand corner is the bark beetle outbreak. And and some of you who, have, if you've been in Colorado for a decade or more, probably remember that there was a big bark beetle outbreak, and and that happened starting in the late '90s. In fact, the troublesome fire, which is something that you heard about earlier, that was one of the initial nodes of the beetle outbreak, and started back in the in the '90s, and the Forest Service was concerned about it at that point and and around Grand Lake and and other places like the Williams Fork area another place that burned this year those areas were really taken apart by the beetle outbreak and and they've now been dead and standing dead for 15 years so they're very dry fuels and and you can see the kind of overlap between the amount of that area that was killed um, by beetles and the amount that's now been burning. We've had over 500,000 acres of fires um, during this, this year. During the peak of the beetle outbreak, there was up to a million acres that were being affected by beetles in a given year. So that outbreak was pretty significant as well. It wasn't leaving burned watersheds, but it was killing things and it was changing the fuel profiles. And those things are sort of are related. 
And one of the important points to this is that we're starting to see in Colorado places where the regeneration does not follow the textbooks. So the figure on the left shows regeneration, tr new trees coming in after fires that happened in 2016 and 2018. And what you can see is a lot of zeros coming across from the left-hand side in various fires. It's not until you get over to the far right-hand side and you have a lot more cone serotony. And that's one particular fire where we actually see really good regeneration. That fire, by the way, was the Beaver, the Badger Creek fire, which was affected by the Mullen fire. So I hope, but I don't know, some of that regeneration that we counted in the from the Badger Creek fire may have then been reburned by the Mullen fire, which is unfortunate. The, the other graph shows a similar response. This was following the Church Park fire, which was one of the initial sort of post bark beetle fires that we've been studying. And for four years following the fire, we saw virtually no tree regeneration in areas where we certainly would have expected that for lodgepole and other conifers. So kind of some large um, sort of red flags or warning signs that make us think a little bit about the future. And so to bring this back to water, um, this is a picture of the Heyman fire scar that burned um, 18 years ago. And you can see what those landscapes look like now. They have yet to recover into forest. And, and, and that has definite implications for the water quality going downstream. So the, the data that you see shows the amount of greenness, which is basically an index for the amount of forest cover, and then the amount of, of stream nitrate, which is an important bioavailable form of nitrogen that influences uh, aquatic biota and, and water treatment. The, the nitrate or the black graphs uh, figures, and you can see in the high severity area, those, those symbols stay high across the entire record compared to the unburned area. And, and it is likely to take the revegetation back to a state where we have similar demand to the, to the pre-fire conditions before we're actually going to close the loop on that, that nutrient picture. And, and so we have decades long effects of, of wildfires. And that's, that's the last point I wanted to leave you with. The BizWest podcast is brought to you by Char Technology, offering dependable, custom-tailored IT services for an array of businesses in Northern Colorado. In today's world, you can't afford to lose a day or even hours waiting for your IT company to call you back or get to your ticket. That's where we come in. Visit chartertech.com. Next, we have the other major crisis for Coloradans this year, the pandemic. As of October 29th, just less than 1.2 million Coloradans have been tested for COVID-19 at some point in the past several months. That is a little over one in five residents of the state, the vast majority of whom were tested with a long swab up the nose. But public health experts have been testing wastewater to try and predict outbreaks in hotspots in certain regions, including in northern Colorado. In this Q&A, you'll hear Rose Nash, the Research and Development Director at GT Molecular in Fort Collins, Larimer County Public Health Director Tom Gonzalez, Wellington Public Works Director Bob Gowing, and Sean Chambers, Greeley's Director of Water and Sewer. My first question is for Tom. I'm curious how you see the use of wastewater monitoring for COVID, how this is going to evolve through the time in which we have a vaccine. Do you think it's possible that we could use this to identify areas with limited vaccine participation? Thank you for the question, uh, Rose. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the vaccine, they're on the phase three trials, they're working hard to 
to get a viable, trusted vaccine. Uh, but it's going to be it's going to be a big demand worldwide. So we're, the way the state's looking at it is in their plan to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is those high risk and most vulnerable populations. So those will be the first to get the vaccine, which makes ethical sense. But what about everyone else? And, and we're still going to have to be making sure we're testing and isolating quarantine. So absolutely, I will see this technology uh, with other mitigation uh efforts that we've been utilizing since the beginning of the pandemic, even more important as we get through the pandemic and navigate uh, through it. So I, I see this technology being used well into next year uh, with our partners to identify uh, the early warning indicators and preventing outbreaks and ultimately preventing illness and, and, and a medical surge on our hospitals. Great. I have a, another question coming in for Bob. Um, let me see here. Someone is wondering, you know, with this new non-potable water system that you've developed to supply your parks, is that available for purchase by possible future developers for their pocket parks? Um, that system was actually developed for the wastewater plant, which um, uses quite a bit of water. That's some, um, the, the potential of reuse is something that we're looking at. I think we're a little ways out from from having that available, but that's a great question and uh, certainly something that we're looking towards trying to implement. Great. My next question is for Sean. Um, as you're well aware, as we um, both um, Tom and myself presented, um, wastewater is getting a lot of attention these days in the news as well as the media. Um, with the wastewater operators being asked to collect these samples um, for these COVID monitoring programs, has this increased attention resulted in new challenges for operating a wastewater treatment facility? Yeah, that's a great and interesting question. I don't think that the collection of samples has increased or created uh, tension amongst the workforce, um, but certainly just the uncertainty about COVID and uh, understanding how it most easily um, is communicated amongst people, that that um, that curve of uncertainty that we're starting to, to more fully um, appreciate and understand was really challenging for us in the beginning. Um, as I'm sure we've all experienced, there are folks who have just been um, really, really fearful of contracting this and spreading it to their family or their friends or their fragile ill um, uh, relatives. And, and we had many wastewater operators in that same position where um, they didn't understand the threat they faced, and that uncertainty was a bit paralyzing in the early months of the virus. Sure. Kind of on that topic, you know, we, we have this conversation a lot as we bring on new, new municipalities or treatment plants in this type of program. Um, and we always like to point to there's been several scientific studies that have shown that um, to this date, no one has been able to culture the virus from waste. Um, and there's been no reported cases of someone contracting COVID-19 from wastewater. Um, so right now it's thought in the field that, um, and of course everything is changing with COVID at all times. So I think it's great you guys have these wonderful PPE programs. Um, but right now the general consensus in the field is that the version of the virus that we're quantifying that's present in waste is actually non-infectious, um, which is something we always like to share with new customers coming online as maybe it takes out a little bit of the stress um, with working closely with these samples. 
Um, so next, I'd like to direct a question to Bob. Um, Bob, you spoke a lot about the changes that you've had to react to, um, you know, with the increased water demand um, within your city. Um, how supportive has your governing body been during this pandemic? Well, thanks for that question. That's a great question. Um, I've been, not to overstate it, but kind of inspired the way uh, the town, our town, has pulled together. The We're governed by a board of trustees. Uh, several of the trustees had an active role in our combined incident command group with the Wellington Fire Protection District. And, uh, of course, they've been extremely supportive of us at the staff level, kind of working our way through this. So, um, it, frankly, it's been that's worked great. And this community has really come together in a, in a meaningful way, which is nice to see. Great. So, so I have another question coming in from Bob in Wellington. Um, do you equate the 46% increased demand for 2020 um, to drought at all? Is it similar for other drought years or did the COVID um, matter compound this? Uh, similar to what Sean saw, we did not see a great increase at the wastewater plant. So we are attributing almost all of that to outdoor water use, which was what made the 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 reduction in outdoor water use such an important part of our response. Great. And then we, you know, there's one question that we get frequently, which is, you know, how this technology is used um, in the university setting, something that, that Tom um, touched on when he talked about, you know, the use of our protocol and in, in shutting down those two dormitories. Um, and my answer to this question is often that um, this type of technology reduces how much we're swabbing our students. Um, if anyone here has had a nasal pharyngeal swab, um, it is not fun. Um, so one of the benefits of this technology is, you know, besides it being this, this great early warning system, um, is that we get readouts um, that can trigger testing. And thus we can, you know, if a dorm has very low amounts, um, they can, you know, avoid being tested that week. And then if they have high amounts, they can go in, do these targeted testing programs, identify, you know, the person that's shedding um, the waste into the wastewater and then move them into a quarantine dorm. Um, so I can say from, you know, we, we're monitoring several universities around the country. And it's a really interesting demonstration of a game of whack-a-mole um, where we usually have, you know, it's very obvious from the first time that we do testing where the quarantine dorm is located because we'll have a really high level and all the other dormitories will be low. Um, and then we'll see those other dormitories start to come up. We know that they've then gone in and done testing. They move those students into the um, quarantine dorm and all the levels go low and that quarantine dorm goes up again. Um, so it's been a really interesting evolving use for this technology um, in the university setting. And it's also starting to be adopted into other large facilities like large employers um, and correctional facilities as well. That'll do it for this week's episode. This podcast was produced by me, Dan Micah, with assistance from Lucas High. If you have comments or questions, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at news at bizwest.com, and you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you need to catch up on all the news in Northern Colorado and the Boulder Valley business scene, please consider subscribing to us at www.bizwest.com. We can't do what we do without your support. Our intro and outro music is The Old RV by Craig MacArthur. And from everyone here at BizWest Media, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
Today's podcast is brought to you by FMS Bank. Banking made simple with locations in Greeley and Fort Morgan. FMS provides banking that makes sense and makes life simple with personalized financial solutions for business and individuals. Visit fmsbank.com.